Go ahead and take your Bibles, please, and turn to Acts chapter 20. That's our passage today, Acts chapter 20. We're in a series of messages entitled Turning Points, looking at pivotal moments in the book of Acts, moments where the history of the church was on a hinge, so to speak, and went in a certain direction. Here's the key concept for today. God guides Paul into, not away from, trouble. Into not away from trouble. Now, in the portion of Scripture we're going to look at today, the Apostle Paul is traveling to Jerusalem on the end of his third missionary journey. Last week, we were actually in the midst of the second missionary journey, and time has gone by. In fact, the third missionary journey kind of starts inconspicuously, if you will, uh, in the middle of chapter 18, verse 23. There's not a chapter break. There's not a section break usually in the, in the printed scriptures. It just kind of Paul gets himself up again and, and visits once again the churches that he's been uh, planting and so forth. But now it's come a time in a season where he wants to get back to Jerusalem, and he wants to get back to Jerusalem at a particular point in time to celebrate the Pentecost holiday. And so you have a sense that in this third missionary journey, Paul is at the end now picking up speed, wanting to get back into Jerusalem. And so he's sailing, and he stops off at a port called Miletus. He's heading east uh, from, uh, from what we call Greece and then what is we call Turkey, and now he's uh, sailing eastward to, to uh, Jerusalem eventually. And he stops at this port south of Ephesus called Miletus, and he doesn't take time to travel to Ephesus to meet with the people there. Instead, he calls the elders of the Ephesian church to meet him in this port city uh, so that he can bid them farewell. And and so we are treated to one of the most emotional farewell scenes in all of the Scripture here in Acts chapter 20. Let's read what Paul says to the Ephesian elders starting in verse 22. He says this, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that, uh, that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood." As Paul speaks to these elders of the Ephesian church, he says he's certain of a few things. He's certain that he will not return or see them again. He's certain that as he goes, there is danger ahead. He's certain that he has led a life focused on declaring the message of hope in Jesus Christ. And he's certain that as he is traveling now, he is being led by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's committed to follow that mission that God has him on. Even if it costs him his life, he wants to be where God wants him to be. And so he feels compelled to go to Jerusalem, even though he's sure 
danger awaits. He doesn't know the specifics of the danger. He doesn't have all the details mapped out in his mind, but he has that sense, that discernment from the Holy Spirit that danger is ahead, but that's the way I want you to go. Along the way, people will uh, Paul will encounter people like these Ephesian elders who are saddened by that news. Along the way, he will encounter people who will warn him against following what he thinks is God's leading in his life and going to Jerusalem. Now, these are good people. These are Christian people. These are smart people. These are people who love Paul and feel that they're led by the Spirit to tell him not to proceed on this journey to Jerusalem. And that presents us with a question. Is Paul wrong for ignoring the advice of the Ephesian elders and other people that we'll notice in just a few moments? Is he wrong for ignoring their advice and pressing on no matter what they say? Or are these warnings that we see and the advice not to go to Jerusalem, is this just the over-emotionalized reaction of people who care for Paul? See, it's not as if Paul had any illusions. He knew he was heading to difficulty, yet he felt the Spirit was compelling him, although others disagreed. And it leaves us with a question. What are we to make of this? Is this the Holy Spirit compelling Paul to go, or is it not? Is it something else? And there's actually still controversy on that point. And you can notice the controversy on that point by the very translation of the Bible that you're looking at. Specifically, I want you to look at verse 22 of chapter 20. I read to you the NIV, and in the NIV, the word spirit is capitalized, meaning that the translators that worked on the New International Version feel that the word spirit there refers to the Holy Spirit, okay? That's also true in the English Standard Version. If you're looking at that version of the Bible, the S on the word spirit is capitalized. However, if you're looking at the New American Standard Bible or the New King James Version, you'll see that the S in that word in that verse is small s. In other words, the translators there think that Paul is not necessarily referring to the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit within him, his own spirit. So which is it? The first would mean this is infallible guidance. The Holy Spirit is directing me. The second, his own spirit, has the possibility of making a mistake. Now this becomes a very important question and the details that we look at here become very important issues in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ who wants to do the will of God because advice giving and advice receiving is all around us. It's part of all of our lives. We receive advice from our parents. We receive advice from our friends, from our teachers, co-workers, about all sorts of things. Sometimes you want the advice. Sometimes you don't even ask for the advice, but they're free to give it anyway. There's advice columns that are in our newspapers and so forth. But certainly at the crisis points of life, at the crossroads of life, this is where we need clear advice. Should I do this or should I do that? And it is in those very moments where very often what we get is conflicting advice or 
we get advice that seems to conflict with our own convictions and the thoughts within us. So how do we navigate those kinds of waters? Here is where a clear sense of our own purpose is necessary. Here is where we need to understand why we exist, how God has wired us, what we're here to do, so that we can make our way through sometimes conflicting advice. Paul says, I want to be true to my Savior. My life has been about proclaiming the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ even if it costs me my life. And look back at verse 22. He says, And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me. Prison and hardships are facing me. Paul feels compelled to go. And I believe that the New International Version is correct to, to capitalize that S. I think that Paul is compelled by the Holy Spirit giving him that awareness that even though I'm sending you back to Jerusalem, hardship awaits you there. But I also believe that the other Christians around Paul, those who are his friends and co-workers, they also spiritually discerned the fact that there is danger ahead for our friend. There, there, are, there are things that he's going to face that will be hardships. And they were free to share that with the Apostle Paul because their heart was heavy because of that. But it wasn't like Paul didn't already know that. They weren't telling him anything new. He had already factored that into his plans. And so it brings us to some observations about the giving and receiving of advice in the circle of relationships that we have. Number one, this. Advice can often be more about the person giving the advice than about the person receiving the advice, right? I think that's what's happening here. I think that the Ephesian Christians and others that we'll notice in, in a few moments, they, they were uh, giving advice out of their own emotions. We don't want you to go. It's really about them, not so much about Paul. I once saw an interview uh, given by the television actor Alan Alda. You'll remember him from uh, the television series MASH. Well, he wrote a book about his life, and he titled the book, Never Have Your Dog Stuffed. So you know right away that whenever you're going to give an interview about a book with that kind of title, you have to explain the title, right? And so, and so in the interview, he explained the title, and it goes back to when he was eight years old. When he was eight years old, his dog died. And the, his father was planning on burying the dog in the backyard. And Alan Olda, as eight years old, he just was so sad, so heartbroken, so traumatized by the thought of, you know, his dog being dead and buried in the backyard. He just couldn't get over it, and he was weeping and crying, and his father couldn't stand to have him cry like that. And so in the spur of the moment, the father said, well, okay, maybe we should have him stuffed. And that's what they did. They had the dog stuffed. Well, it created a whole series of new problems. What do you do with your stuffed dog? Where do you put your stuffed dog? And so they, they decided they're going to put the, the stuffed dog on their front porch. And that's what they did. And that created a whole series of problems because the mailman, the delivery man, people wouldn't come up on the porch because there was this unblinking, unmoving dog that was always there. 
And that family story came to uh, create this, this idea of stuffing the dog. It came to be a phrase that they used as a metaphor for seeking to avoid sadness or seeking to avoid problems, never allowing change to come into the system, to come into your life. And uh, it, it worked out badly. And that's what's happening here with the, uh, the Apostle Paul, those around him. They, they don't want him to, to uh, enter into what might be sad or difficult, kind of stuffing the dog in a sense in that situation. But Paul understood, no, this is something I have to go. I know you feel that way, but that's more about you than it is about me. God is directing me. Secondly, we learn here that there are times when advice, even well-meant advice from godly loving people, uh, if we follow it, will distract us from the will of God for our lives. The tears of the Ephesian elders, if Paul had allowed their tears and their weeping to stop him from what he knew he had to do, he would be stepping out of the will of God. But he didn't allow them to be stopped. And so they got back in the boat and they sailed eastward from Miletus. They're heading across the Mediterranean Sea towards the east, going to the Holy Land. They land in Tyre, which is a Gentile city north of Israel. And there, too, they encounter more believers, more weeping, more encouragement. No, don't go. There's danger ahead. But that didn't dissuade Paul. He pushed on. He came down the coast to Caesarea, which was a port city inside the nation of Israel. And there, not only is he met by believers, he's met by a prophet by the name of Agabus. And here's the scene there from Acts chapter 21. It says, Coming over to us, he took, that's Agabus, took Paul's belt, tied in, in his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people were pl there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Did you notice how Luke puts himself in the action here as he's telling this story? It's not just the people who are telling Paul not to do it. It's not just Agabus the prophet. Luke himself says we, the traveling companions, we also were pleading with Paul. See, Agabus was a prophet. He wasn't a false prophet. He's not said to be a false prophet. In fact, he's right on the money. What he says will happen is exactly what happens. Paul goes to Jerusalem. He will be arrested. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. This is what's going to come. And so the people sensing that, they all agree, don't do it, Paul. It's a bad idea. See, they jump to a conclusion, which oftentimes we jump to as well. Luke jumps to that conclusion also. And that conclusion is suffering could not be the will of God. But it's towards the suffering that God is leading Paul. We often think, though, like they thought, well, it, it would never be the will of God that we would be put in a situation where we will face hardship. It would never be the will of God that we would be in a situation where we would definitely walk towards suffering. We often have the attitude that if this is God's will for me, if this is something that He wants me to do, it, it will work out smoothly. There will not be any problems. Things will fall into place. It will all go very, very well. In fact, when things go very, very well, we say, well, this must be the, the Lord's will. The problem is this. 
That kind of thinking does not correspond with what we see in the lives of the people in the Bible. It particularly does not correspond with the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. He suffers. You see, to choose to suffer for the sake of suffering is crazy. But to choose to follow God's plan, even if it takes us through suffering, that's Christ-like. And that's what the Apostle Paul needed to do. Paul stood his ground. And he was able to stand his ground and know that this was his direction, that this was his journey, because he understood his purpose. Having that sense of purpose, he could withstand the headwinds of conflicting advice. So my question is, do you have that sense of purpose? Do you have an understanding of the way that God has wired you, the thing that He's called you to, the way He wants to use you, and so that you're not going to be dissuaded from that, even though people who love you and like you might say something different? See, the question comes, how can we be sure that we know that purpose? How can we be sure that we're the kind of people who can discern the will of God so that when a path is before us, I can sense either this is the right way or the wrong way? Thankfully, Paul himself has given us insight into that very question. By now, as he's traveled making this journey, he has already written the letter to the Christians in Rome. And in that letter to the Christian, Christians in Rome, he's written two things that are pertinent for this story. One is he's told them, I long to come to visit you. I want to preach the gospel in Rome. That's one of his goals. Secondly, he's told us how we can find the will of God. He tells us that in Romans chapter 12. Uh, read with me chapter 12, 1 and 2. says this, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as, a, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good and pleasing and perfect will. Notice that last sentence. Then you will be able to test and approve God's will. There are some prerequisites that have to be in our lives if we're going to be the kind of people that will be able to test and approve the will of God. But we can. Here is the progression of Paul's thought. He says, first of all, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It means this. It means be sold out. To the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way that you live. Be wholly devoted to your God in the way that you live, the way that you live physically, that the things that you do with your body needs to demonstrate that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, totally committed to Him. Who you are, the, the life you live, it really doesn't matter anymore because I'm a sacrifice. I'm, I'm completely committed to following my God. And after you do that, there is a transformation that happens by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by mind renewal. In other words, you need to change the way that you think. You need to change the priorities that you care about. God wants us as 
living sacrifices to think his thoughts, to care about his priorities. And as we are renewed in our mind, the priorities in our life begins to change. And in that transformed life, you'll be able to discern. You'll be able to, to, to discover God's good, pleasing, and perfect will for your life. That's the end of, chapter, of verse 2. When you do that, you can see the will of God. You can see how God is leading you. Now, how often have we missed this? How often do we come to a place and we, say, and we beg God in prayer, God, I want to know your will. God, I want to know your direction. I want to live in the center of your plan for my life. And God says, I've been trying to tell you how to do it. This is how to do it. Be about mind renewal that leads to life transformation because you see yourself as a living sacrifice. And when you're doing that, the plan will unfold. Mind renewal happens as we allow the Word of God's truth to saturate our mind over and over again. Mind renewal happens as we begin to adopt those priorities that are God's priorities, to care more about the things that God cares about, as we share God's outlook, as we will God's will, and also as we trust God in humility, that where He will lead me is a place not only where He will be glorified, but but I will be in His grace and in His mercy and protection. This is the renewed mind. I'm a sacrifice in all of this. Paul has already written this. And this is his attitude as he travels across the Mediterranean, his attitude as he goes down to coasts of Israel and now meets with Agabus and the other saints, even though they're pleading that he don't go. He's, I'm a sacrifice in all of this. And I know that this is God's will. See, with a renewed mind, we make decisions that are in line with the purposes of God, no matter what the advice is that we're getting from others. We will be aided at times, assisted at times by good and godly advice, but it's never all about the advice. Paul has weighed these ideas. He sees the hardship to come, but he knows this is the way because he's a sacrifice. Now, this might seem like an odd question to ask, but it, just trust me, it relates. The question is this. Have you ever snorkeled? I don't know if you've been snorkeling or not, but uh, I remember the first time, you know, when you put the face mask on and the tube and all that, and I remember the first time that I ever did that. And um, in order to, to make it work, of course, you have to put on your mask, you have to put the tube in your mouth, put your face in the water, and breathe. Now, a lot of people don't get any further than that because that is against everything we've always been taught. Everything we've always understood about swimming is you don't put your face in the water and breathe. Don't put your face in the water and suck in. But all of a sudden, now the rules have changed. When you're snorkeling, you have that equipment. Put your face in the water and breathe. And when you do that, and you push down those lesser voices of all those fears that, you know, this is not going to work, this is not for me, I'm not comfortable. When you push all those lesser voices down, you find that a world opens up for you, that, that in a world that you've never seen before. And in a, in a strange way, that's kind of the situation of 
trusting God as he leads you through life. You're pushing down the, the lesser voices that demand your attention. They may be voices within you or they may be the voices around you, but when you can push those voices down, you're able to see God's will and God's direction, and he says it's good and it's perfect and it's pleasing. But it doesn't mean that it's easy and it's fun according to the world's standards. You see, really, in order to follow God, we have to do what the Apostle Paul is doing here. We have to define good the way that God defines good. It doesn't mean easy. And we have to understand that difficult and perfect are not contradictory. Sometimes the perfect will of God is going to be difficult, and it will take us into difficult places. But you can discern that it's right, and you can know it's true through mind renewal and a transformed life through Jesus Christ. And when you discern that this path is right and you know that it's true, even though it's difficult, as you follow, you have a sense of joy and a peace that brings confidence, the kind of confidence that the Apostle Paul shows. He's not deterred again and again and again by people who, even out of the kindness of their heart, their advice would take him off the path that God has for him. So, let's ask the question, what's the result of all of this? How does all of this work out? Well, Paul does get to Jerusalem, and guess what? He does get arrested. He is handed over to the Gentiles. He's kept in prison. Everything that they predict is absolutely true. As a matter of fact, not only is he arrested and kept in prison, uh, uh, there's an assassination attempt on his life. So he's transferred from one jail to another down to uh, Caesarea in, in the port city. And we know, looking back, that he'll spend two years in that, uh, in that jail awaiting an appeal to Caesar so that he can uh, state his case. All of that happens. But this also happens, Acts 23, 11. It says, The Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. What also happens is that the Lord Jesus appears to Paul. He stands next to him, and he gives him an encouraging word, an encouraging vision. Remember, Paul, when you wrote to the Romans and you said you wanted to be with them, this is the way I'm going to get you to Rome. And guess what? They're going to pay for your transportation. See, these events take place in A.D. 58. One year prior to that, A.D. 57, Paul had written to that church. Here's the verse I referenced a moment ago, Romans 1.15. I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. God also was eager for him to do that at his perfect timetable, in the plan that he had for him, God was accomplishing that wish of Paul's heart through this method. See, sometimes God permits what we hate in order to accomplish what he loves. And we got to go through that. And Paul accepted that. The will of God for us is not always easy and not always fun, but always in the journey as we're taking it, he is with us strengthening us, and He waits for us at the destination. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that we are those who are able to understand our own purpose 
and to accomplish your will for us. Lord, we recognize that this world is not our home. Ultimately, we belong to another kingdom. And so there will be times when following you is going to be difficult. Hardships will come. Sacrifices will be made. Lord, we pray that we are willing. We pray that we, pray that we are able. We pray that we are courageous enough even to work against those voices that would seek to dissuade us from your will. First and foremost, we want to be your people. Help us do that, Lord, because we love you and we rejoice in the salvation, Jesus, that you have earned for us in your work on the cross. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The team is going to come and lead us in another song. Let's worship together. As we prepare our hearts for communion, let's sing this song together. You are. 
It may be that some of you who are watching us at home are going to choose to not participate in the communion time this morning. If that's the case, thank you for tuning in, and we hope to see you again next week. But for all of us who are in the courtyard and those who have prepared at home, uh, we trust that you have your elements handy. And as we go to communion, I want to just reflect with you at some of the titles that you share as a believer in Jesus Christ. Saint, saved, chosen, a follower of Christ, disciple, all these wonderful titles. And one of those titles that the Apostle Paul often uses of us is he calls us the redeemed. What does that mean? Paul takes that word that we translate redeemed and he lifts it out of the slave markets of the day. And the word was used to describe that situation where the slave was being bought, but also sometimes particularly when the slave was being bought out of slavery in order to be set free, out of slavery into freedom. And that's a perfect picture for what Jesus Christ has done for us, but bought us out of slavery of sin and the consequence of sin to the freedom we have in Christ. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And today we give thanks for the fact that Jesus was willing to pay the price of that ransom, his own blood and his broken body. We've been set free in Christ. And if that's you, we, of course, invite you to participate with us in this sharing of communion. And so I'm going to invite you to have a few moments of just silent prayer, expressing your love and admiration for the Lord, and also confessing to Him that which needs to be confessed before we continue in our participation of communion. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that there are things that oftentimes get in the way of our relationship with you. We ask for your forgiveness for those things that we have done out of rebellion or those things that we didn't do, which we sense that you are asking us to do, but once again, we rebelled against your direction. Forgive us, Lord, and we thank you that your forgiveness is always given when asked for. We rejoice in this opportunity to remember your sacrifice. And we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased with our dedication to you and seeking to honor you in this way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The streets of heaven are filled with former captives who are now eternally free and eternally safe in Christ. No wonder when we glimpse into heaven uh, in the the Bible, we read scenes like this from Revelation chapter 5. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. The saints are rejoicing in that way because of their redemption and so do we. And so I invite you to take your uh, communion elements, and if you're using the communion elements we've provided there in the courtyard, peel back that cellophane portion, and you'll expose the wafer. 
and we partake together in this wafer symbolizing the body of Jesus, Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat together. And as we peel back that foil portion of the elements packet there, we expose the juice symbolizing the blood of Jesus. Jesus said this blood is the blood of the new covenant, the covenant of grace. With his blood, he purchased us out of slavery for sin. Let us drink together. Amen. No matter where you are, whether at home or in the courtyard, would you stand with me for our benediction this morning? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance we have to rejoice in what God the Son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you enable us uh, to live lives of power because of your presence within. Keep us true to the mission and the cause that you have us on. Help us not to be diverted, even if advice comes this way or that. We pray, Lord, that we will know for sure the, the voice of the Spirit whispering, this is the way, walk ye in it. Give us guidance and strength to represent you well, we pray, for we rejoice in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in. We hope to see you next Sunday.